Welcome to this episode of About the Adventure, a podcast that shares a variety of career change stories. I am your host, Sarah Lister, a curious question maker living in the Peak District. My guest is Karen Weir, who changed career from working as a management consultant in London to becoming a running and triathlon coach and personal trainer. I asked her about the difference that running has made to her life, what she thinks have been the biggest learning curves along the way, where she hopes that her masters in advanced sports coaching will lead, and her experience of being involved with Park Run. At the end, Karen leaves you with a question to think about. We recorded this interview at the Cafe Adventure Bothy in Hope, so please make yourself a pot of tea and imagine that you're with us, surrounded by the hills of the Hope Valley. How has running made a difference to your life? Okay, well, as a running coach, you probably expect me to say it's the most important thing in my life. Um, But it's not now, and that's something that I've learned over a number of years. But um, running is an important element of my life, and when it came into my life, I guess it wasn't planned, and certainly what's happened since I've been running was never planned. But I can see when I started running, that changed the trajectory of my life, basically. So everything I'm doing now is because I decided to start running at some point in the dim and distant past. And what transformations do you see in the people that you coach and train? Um, Obviously, uh, I coach people to help them achieve their goals and get better, get faster generally. Um, But the biggest thing for me is seeing people improve their, their confidence in what they can achieve, um, what they think is possible, that how that changes in people's mind. Um, but another really, really big thing, which is really important to me, is just getting people to um, reduce the amount of injuries they get, let's say. So a lot of people come to me after the point that they have had successive injuries and they've tried different things and it's not worked. Um, and invariably, it's just because people do more. Um, you know, I need to get better, so I'm going to do more, do more, do more, do more running, run more hills, try and run faster, um, and they just get end up injured. So a big part and a big success factor for me is if I can get my athletes through through a year, through whatever their build, event build-up is with, with no injuries, and uh, fortunately, um, I'm pretty good at that. And also helping people... Um, take their own mitigating actions so they don't end up injured or recognise that they're falling into a sort of repeated patterns that lead to injury and that kind of thing. While I was out running recently, I was thinking about trust and how through running, I've learned to trust myself more. And have you found that as well in, in a way that running can maybe have an impact on your confidence with running, but also on other areas of your life? Have you found that as well? I think so. I think you it's all about feeling that you're in control of your life or in control of your your destiny I mean that's a massive word but uh, in control of your life whether it's your running whether it's another hobby whether it's work whether it's you know relationships and I think running does teach you that because initially we all look for shortcuts we look for the magic bullet that's going to make us um, better you know some if you go to a certain coach or you go you read a certain magazine or you take a certain supplement you know, you will get better. Um, we will think that's out there. But actually, what you realise is it comes down to sensible, hard work, um, but with enough rest and enough looking after yourself and self-care. And I think once you get your head around that in terms of running, you apply that to other areas of your life as well. Um, and you know that you've got to invest time and effort in, in all these other things, your relationships or your work, and but without pushing yourself over the edge because you've just gone too hard or or try to seek a shortcut. Do you say, do you incorporate that approach and that guidance into your coaching? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's probably what sets me apart from a lot of, a lot of coaches that, um, you know, I've, I've heard of other people work with and, and certainly what you see in mainstream, you know, magazines and social media where they, people are saying, you know, I've got the exercise that you should do and it will bulletproof you and you won't get injured. And, and then and people buy into it and then lo and behold they do get injured or they don't get the results they want and then they they become disheartened you know demotivated work you know and even worse sort of spirals of depression and that kind of thing and I think you have to be really honest 
Um, and I say to people what I think they're capable of achieving. Um, so if someone's set their goals too high, you know, I say that, you know, maybe eventually, but we need to take stepping stones and this is where we're going to go to first. And then other people that, you know, that do, don't look as optimistically as perhaps they should and or underestimate what they're capable of, particularly if they haven't trained in a structured way or, or aren't getting their nutrition right or... Um, one of the really classic things is is under eating, you know, just not fueling life, let alone training, um, in the in the misguided um, way that you know mainstream media pushes out there again that eat less calories you'll lose weight. That doesn't really work. Um, it's the quality of the calories you're eating really that you need to look at, and certainly if you're training, you need to fuel your training, otherwise your body just goes into a state of stress, and then we get injuries and. And actually your body won't lose weight or shift weight if you're if it's in a state of stress so so all those things it becomes really important about helping people to to be in control coming back to your very early question being being in control and taking decisions based on um you know the correct information not what they've been fed by someone that's trying to sell them something how has your approach to work changed since you left your job in london I don't think it has changed. I think, I mean, it's, it's a good question. And I think the values that I have are, um, I apply in, in everything. So when I worked in the city as a management consultant, I was, you know, punctual, professional, um, you know, I'm not an attention to detail person. That would never be my strength, but I am someone that's professional. I, work, I will um, deliver on my promises, that kind of thing. And that's still how I work now, and and I think that's how I show up in life in general. So, I don't think I don't think it's changed. I think, and it does frustrate me when you see sort of um, again whatever walk of life that that people don't exhibit those those sort of professionalism and respect for other people and those kind of skills. So, um, or values. So yeah, I definitely just carry over the same values to all areas of my life. I think. What do you think have been the biggest learning curves for you since you started offering your coaching and training services? Okay, so massive learning curve for me has been um, about this idea of, of being kind to yourself and taking, taking rest and recovery time and self-care time. And um, it's, it's also been about, and, and this, this goes right back to when I left the city, so when I was working in the city, I was a management consultant, as you know, and then um, I gave up what I thought was uh, or held in quite high esteem, that kind of role working in the city and everything that goes with it. And suddenly I was a personal trainer um, and it's all about labels and identity. And I really struggled with, although it's what I wanted to do, do something different, be a personal trainer. The, I didn't want to lose that identity of, of having been a management consultant and, and what went with that. Um, so I always used to you know, introduce myself to people, oh, I'm a personal trainer, but I used to be a management consultant for a long time. And it, it, took, a, it took a long time for me to accept that it's okay to just be a personal trainer. You know, it is my choice, but it's still, it's okay to just be a personal trainer. And then I went into the coaching. But the other... The other label I've had to learn to lose is the athlete label. So I, I did, when I started out, I did want to do all the training. I did want to um, be working out in the gym and I did want to do all the races. And it's just exhausting to do that and the coaching as well. So, and that's probably only the most recent learning curve for me is that I've like, I'm okay that I'm not an athlete anymore. I'm okay that I'm a coach. And coach is a very worthwhile career and I can invest in that and develop myself in that and be the best coach I can be. So now I would always say I'm a coach and I wouldn't even refer to what I've done in the past. And actually I, I, I get quite uncomfortable when people talk about that now. Well, you've done this, you've done that. I'm going, yeah, but actually I'm a coach now and that's that's what I'm, in, I'm invested in. So this this idea of trying to let labels go or um, and, and not getting you know, we all have an identity that we think, but it's, it's often the identity we put on ourselves and other people don't care about that. You know, it's a societal issue. We like, we like things in boxes. We like, we like to put labels on things and know where everything fits. Um, so yeah, that's been a big learning curve and that's come 
that's developed over throughout my coaching career. And what do you think are some really good ways for people to take the pressure off themselves to train all the time or work all the time? Um, you know, these little key things that just give you give your head a bit of a break from always striving towards something. I think it's a really it's a really hard thing, and it's it's almost something that you can't be taught. You have to experience it for yourself. Um, I think it's I think it's a cycle. Uh, again, this is something I've learned through my coaching. I think it's a cycle that people go through. I've really tried to tell people to learn from my mistakes and learn from my experience. And I, you know, I do sometimes feel like I'm on a soapbox banging on about this, the importance of rest and recovery and being kind to yourself. Um, but I don't think people can be told it. I think they have to learn it, which sadly means there has to become some point where you get pretty low. You know, hopefully for most people, it's it's just pretty low. It's not sort of dark depression or, or something, um, you know, medically worse. And, you know, and I'm not qualified to deal with that. But I think we all have to get to that point where we just think I need to make change in my life. And I'm sure that's what leads most people to uh, to making the big changes in their life because they have reached their, their rock bottom, whatever that is for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I think, like you say, most people have to reach that point yeah. and then go, okay, what, what do I need to do that's yeah. different? So. And, and that's when I think it's good to, to say, okay, I don't know what I need to do and reach out for help be it your running coach, be it, you know, a nutritional coach, be it a life coach, be it going into education again and just learning something that, you know, that that lights you up, that you're interested in. I think I think just knowing that something is not right and you have to make a change, um, that's the point you need to get to. And then it's absolutely fine to ask for that help and important that you do ask for that help because uh, that's the only way I think that you then come out the other side quicker. But I have really learned that I can tell people till I'm blue in their face, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And they've got to experience it for themselves. It's, it, it's as basic as giving someone a strategy of how they, they run their marathon or whatever. You know, I very, you know, we, we know the science tells us that equal splits or negative splits is the way to go forward. Um, but people still run out too fast, start their races, run really hard, blow up. And until they've done it and got to that point where they think, what have I done? I can't finish this. This is really hard. They have to experience it for themselves, you know. So uh, I just have to be there on the other side and pick them up and go, what did you learn from that? Right, now we'll go back to uh, to uh, a negative split or equal pacing or and help them help them achieve that. But it's <laughs> you've got to sort of make the mistakes first. It seems to be a very human thing to want to just completely drain ourselves, <laughs> whether it's in sport or <laughs> in work or... yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely it's and again I think it's um, a western societal cultural thing that you know these days um, everything is you know is is time driven and and we need to be as fast as we can Um, and it's really interesting actually just uh, on the radio this morning I was listening to uh, to someone talking about um, how it all stems as far back as the development of uh, time or clocks you know as soon as we created a clock we put we created something to measure measure ourselves against and and having a watch is the worst you know the worst thing everything is we we just feel we're running out of time all the time so it's a it's something I think that we need to to address as a whole society yeah and I think being in tune with our bodies as well so that we don't let it get to such a stage where you're just flat burnt out yeah but you can kind of catch it a little bit earlier yeah and but again I think that's really hard for people now um, I think we we expect that, you know, that we've normalized stress. We've normalized stress into our lives. We've normalized all those feelings that are horrible and we just think that's just the way it is. Um, so the constant fatigue, the constantly fighting, you know, a cold, the, the not sleeping well, the wired, wired but tired. You know you're really tired, but you can't go to sleep at night and you're, you know, you're watching one more box set, one more box set episode and, um, you know, you finally fall asleep, but it's not a good quality sleep. Um, you know, every day at work, you're, you you know, badge of honor for a number of hours you can do. And if you can eat your lunch at your desk, you know, there's another badge to be had and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's wrong. It is wrong. And I think very gradually 
people are starting to push back against it and I, but I but it needs to happen sooner <laughs> yeah it's hard because it's such a mental thing isn't it yeah. that you have it's like you're fighting your your own thoughts that you should be doing something else it's, I think people are always including myself are always sort of trying to battle between doing one thing and thinking that you should be doing another yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's it's it is having the confidence to set barriers and um and and thinking, you know, and this this idea of multitasking, again, we hold that up as something to be admired. But actually, if you can just give your concentration to one thing, um, you know, you're probably going to do that much better. Uh, and then give yourself a break and then move on to the next thing. Um, you know, multitasking is, is not quite so good. But I think, you know, COVID has amplified this as well for people. You know, everyone's working from home now. And initially we thought, yeah, great, people don't have to commute into the office but there is, there's now no boundaries on the day. So people, you know, they get out of bed, they're straight into work. Um, we expect even more so than we ever used to, you know, with the development of email and, 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 and having everything on your phone and stuff, you just can't turn off. Um, and one of the things I say to a lot of my athletes actually who are now working from home is you've got to build a commute into your day. It's great that you're not forced to spend an hour and a half each day commuting. But you need to sort of top and tail your day from a from a mental perspective more than anything. And I'm not saying go out and you have to run every day or, or whatever it is, you know, that you might think you want to do. But actually just a 10 minute walk before you sit down and start your day. And actually when you finish your day, whatever time it is, another 10 minute walk. So you've created a little bit of movement in the day. Um, but more importantly, you've topped and tailed that day and it's your it's your mental switch off and, and get out of, of work mode because that's I think that's a that's a big problem and the biggest problem I have with and I've always had with with athletes because I work with recreational athletes mainly is they want to train like elite and professional athletes but they have to hold down jobs so they're they are working eight nine ten hours a day they're also generally got caring responsibilities they've got kids they've got you know all sorts of responsibilities um and they've got to take that into account, just general life stress. Then they're going to throw in, I don't know, eight hours of training a week or whatever, if you're a triathlete, loads more. Um, but, you know, elite elite athletes, yeah, they might train 20, 30 hours a week, but that's all they need to do. They don't have to do the washing. They don't have to get the kids up and dressed. And, you know, they, they train, they rest, they eat, they train, they rest, they eat. You know, it's 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 a very different life. And if you want to, if you want to, you want to train like an elite athlete you have to rest like an elite athlete as well i like that (laughs) so going back to the beginning of this running journey where did you discover your passion for running um i will be brutally honest and say uh i didn't have a passion for running i hated it (laughs) it was it was it was i mean i i i don't really know where i or why i got into running um other than I was in my early 20s and um, it looked like a, not, not an easy way to get fit, but uh, um, from a logistical perspective, it was, it was the easiest thing to do. So put on your trainers and, and go out the door. I remember I had a frightful big green fleece that I used to run in that was just not practical at all. But, um, y- you know, I, I, I really don't know where the first impetus came from, but um, I, um, I sort of and it wasn't didn't come naturally it wasn't easy um and I think I probably did 20 minutes of a bit of running and a bit of walking and um one of the one of the big things that did keep me going was actually I moved out to Vancouver in Canada um and the lifestyle there is just tremendous for outdoor outdoor sports um, and I did join up with um, just one of the sort of local um, running shops had uh, running groups. So I went and joined up with one of those and it was just once a week. You met at the shop and they went and they guided you on a run and then it lasted for eight weeks or something. And then you did a 10K at the end. And that kind of helped me, obviously gave me a little community to run with and um but just running in Vancouver was was stunning. I don't know if you've ever been out there, but it's just it's just beautiful, and I you know it's still one of my favourite places to 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 go and run um, around the seawall, around Stanley Park, and so it was just it, the environment was motivating. And I was out there for a year, and I came back, 
and I entered the London Marathon and I don't know why but I did so I think maybe you know subconsciously it was you know need want want to push myself want to try something a bit more um and that was in the days that you could pretty much just enter the London Marathon so you, there used to be a magazine and you did you did apply um loosely through a ballot but you were much more likely to get in I mean it's practically impossible through the ballot these days so I did that in 2003 uh, and I finished it and I said right that's that done never again you know I've, I've done what I need to do in running don't not going to do anymore and I really thought I was going to stop after that and it was only because I'd um, jo- I had joined a local running club um, to help me train for that to get the help and advice and I wasn't fast but I had made some friends at that running club so um, I after a little while I did go okay I'll go back and and then it carried on from there so there certainly wasn't a passion and I was even saying now there is some days when there's no passion and it's like oh god here we go again or or this is this is feeling really hard so and I'd, I'd love people to really know that that you know just because I do run and and I speak to a lot of other runners and, and if they're honest they will say the same thing running is not always great it's not always easy and um you know when you whatever pace you're running at you're generally working harder than you should be um so i'm as uncomfortable as you know running an eight minute mile as someone probably running who is slower that's running a 10 minute mile as someone who's much faster who's running a six minute mile we all just suffer um but it's there is there is something about the the freedom and particularly if you can get out in the hills and get off the get away from the roads that you know that it's often it's afterwards you feel great not during um but you know it's so passion's not necessarily the right word for me it's 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 something that i enjoy most of the time but not all the time and that's okay and that's a that's what i try and tell my athletes as well you don't have to be loving this all the time and it doesn't mean if you don't love it that you should stop and give up do you think it's part of partly the challenge of it that you actually enjoy used to be definitely so I I mean I was on the same journey as everybody else in that um you know you achieve one thing and you're not you're not you know for a split second you think oh great that's a job well done but then you're like okay what next I need to do something bigger I need to do something longer I need to do something more that's not enough anymore and I think again that's a societal issue for a lot of people that there's always this pressure to do more we're never enough so um I think that's you know that was um that was a big part for me but now um and this is, comes back to this, what I was saying to you about this identity of being an athlete I don't have that identity anymore and I'm relieved I don't um I just run when I want to um if it's a nice day the sun comes out I'll go and run if it's not or um I just don't fancy it or you know I'm not I don't not do stuff but I'm actually not just a runner anymore um you know, and I, I got into triathlon, obviously, but I do I do some cycling. And this year, I've just thought I really want to do some more open water swimming. So I've done that over the past few years. I've really, really got into CrossFit. So I love doing that because that is something I'm still getting better at. Um, but yeah, it's very much a case of um, I, I do what I want to now for fun. And also, I think I've learned, which is a big learning curve that everyone needs to go on, is that if you don't do something, it doesn't necessarily go away. So I know a lot of people panic that if they have miss a session or they miss a week or uh, of training, that they'll go backwards. Um, and it doesn't happen that quickly at all. Um, you know, I, I during lockdown because there was nothing else to do. I was running five times a week and I was doing a hundred miles um, a month, which um, is definitely above average for me. But at the moment, I'm probably running twice a week and probably doing 12 miles a week, if that, 10 to 12 miles. Um, And that's okay. And, you know, and it doesn't, and I'm not running slower and I'm not, you know, finding it harder. If anything, when I do go out and run, I'm enjoying it more and it feels easier because my general mood is lifted by the running and not just, you know, having to go out and hit a session. Um, And a lot of my athletes I work with, they always say to me, uh, you know, we, we have our check-ins and we go through what they're doing and how it's been for them. And they, well, how, how's your running going? And what are you training for? And I just tell them, 
training for old age <laughs> and they kind of they're not there yet in that journey that they can accept that and they're like what you've not got a race entered and I no I'm not I'm just I'm just training to be able to live well into my old age um and uh exercising rather than training and and I am sneakily relieved that all these training programs I set for other people I don't have to follow anymore yeah it must be such a relief I mean I only played with entering races and it didn't motivate me at all it actually put me off yeah yeah it's I mean that's and that's actually really refreshing to hear because um there aren't very many people that would that would admit that and also um there are people that are horrendously motivated by races and this was I think one of the problems in lockdown there were no races so people really struggled they didn't run because they loved running they ran because there was a race at the end of it and suddenly take away the races they weren't running they weren't doing any training and it was and you know just didn't know what was what was going on really for them um so i definitely there was some you know a lot more interest in people getting coaching in lockdown because they needed a different source of motivation and i and i think that's that in itself is a really interesting point you know about what do what motivates you don't do something because you think you should or your friend does it or everyone on social media is doing it now if you don't love it you're not going to do it and I say you don't have to love it all the time but you have to love it more than you don't love it um so so yeah it you know and you know we what you've got on your doorstep as well as you know me up on you know Edale up onto Kinder and up on the I mean the heather up there is just beautiful at the moment and that, you know, I want to go on a run where I just have to stop and just take it all in. That's what the kind of running I want to do. I don't want to head down on a pavement just thinking, right, my coach has said I've got to do 60 minutes at tempo pace. You know, I don't want to do that anymore. That doesn't motivate me. Yeah, I think it's it's such a powerful feeling, like going even like I've done the route, same route so many different times, but every single time it feels different and it just looks amazing through all the different seasons. And I always think, why would I want to be anywhere else? Why do I, you know, why do I, uh, why do I feel like I have to go and do a race in Scotland or, uh, and that's what I thought originally when I first started getting into trail running and actually, I mean, not everybody has this on their doorstep, of course. So I understand that motivation to get to the the fells and the mountains and, to to push you to do it but i think yeah if you if you have some nice local uh fells then yeah take taking your time to do things as well and, and not doing it in events so there are i mean obviously you've got all your road races where people are worried about times and, and, and aiming for times but then you go on the hills and the trails uh, and the fells and you you know and that's a different environment again and people are less worried about times and those kind of thing but you still, if you do it in a race, there's still pressure where, you know, there's, there's, we know a lot of the roots of a lot of the, the races that happen around, around us here in the Peak District. And actually to go on a day where there's not, you don't have to race it. And it's, you know, it might be, I don't know, a 20 mile r- route that if you did race it, you might manage to do it in, I don't know, three or four hours, say. But actually, why not take a whole day, take a picnic, you know, go and run for a couple of hours and then take a break, take it all in and and then run on a bit more and come down to a pub and have a drink and or an ice cream or something. I mean, that's just far more what motivates me these days. So, uh, you know, even with the hills and there are, you know, there are some great trail races and, but I don't need the challenge of doing the race. I just want to run if, if it feels good. Mm-hmm. How do you separate your own training and running from working with other people? Um, again, that's something that um, I've I've come to much more recently, and it is all about this change in my identity from a from an athlete. So um, they're completely separate now because I don't worry at all about my training. Um, I it's it it is exhausting trying to train and and coach, uh, and I did for a, did for a long time. Um, you know, try and do both, and I was doing Ironman and doing ultras and stuff like that, and it you start it gives you um it stops you focusing on your athletes as as the individuals they are as well i think um so it it is it's it's really important and i do see it a lot so i'm actually um i'm a triathlon coach uh and involved with um british triathlon federation um and triathlon is is a strange is a strange sport from the perspective that 
a lot of people that want to be coaches um, sign up for coach education because they think it's going to make them a better athlete. So they think they're going to learn tips and tricks and hints or, or methods or techniques that will make them better athletes or triathletes. Um, and that's not generally what you learn when you do a coach education sessions. Um, you learn how to be a coach, which is right and how it should be. Um, but I think, you know, if you want to be a coach, you, you have to go into it with the emphasis being on the people that you're going to coach, not on you. And it's, and I think if you, if you try and do both and say it's exhausting and you won't be successful at it, you have to be able to separate the two. Um, and it's, I say, I say it's quite recent, but you know, I haven't considered really myself an athlete for a few years now, but it's only now that I've realized what that change was. Um, and, and part of that was sort of starting to invest more in myself as a coach. So doing more coach education and, and signing up to do a master's and things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely, I'm a coach, not an athlete. And so my training's not important as long as I'm fit and healthy, uh, and, uh, exercising rather than training and if i'm exercising i can fit it around you know most things so um i don't have to do certain things at certain times or a certain number of hours or, or anything like that which is lovely because you can ch just choose like as you said around the the conditions outside yeah. or you know whatever you feel like you can just choose when and where you go running so i'd like to ask you about your experience of being involved with park run yeah <laughs> So what's, how did you get involved with it and what, how has it been rewarding for you? Um, well, it was a very lucky, happy accident that I was involved with it. Serendipitous, you could say. So the running club that I mentioned when I did my first London marathon that I joined um, was a club down in London called Ranla Harriers. And it just so happened that one of my friends that I made down there um, was a lady called Joanne Turner at the time, but she um was seeing um paul sinton hewitt who is the founder of park run um and so paul one day said to our running club i'm thinking about just doing this this 5k run in bushy park because he was actually injured so he wasn't running and i think he was just missing not being involved with things so he said come come down on 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 the saturday morning and run it and because joe was my friend i went down to see her and um and did it. So there were 13 of us and they were all from uh, the local running club. So there was um, Randler Harriers in Richmond and the Stragglers in Kingston. So we were, we were all from those two running clubs. And um, yeah, and it was, you know, no one had any idea what it would become. So it was a happy accident. I was there um, and I, I don't think I'd probably even run a hard 5k before. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it was tough. It was tough. And, uh, um, I, I finished 10th out of 13. There was myself and another lady and we both had the same finishing time. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it was a happy accident. And are you still involved with it now? Yeah. So, um, I, uh, because I, I'm, you know, I'm really good friends with Paul and Joe. Um, I was involved with setting up Richmond Park Run, which was the fifth park run. Um, and I was the, what we call the event director there for, well, eight years, basically, until I moved up here to the Peak District. Um, so I've seen, as a as a run director, I've seen how the events change, the technology's changed. We used to, in the early days, sit in the park with a laptop and people would come and give you their token and you'd actually take their name and type it in and doing the results was a nightmare if it rained because um, you're actually out in the park. Um, you know, the technology is tremendous now, although a lot of event teams still complain about it, but it's so much better than it ever was. Um, but now when I moved up to the Peak District, so uh, sort of five and a half years ago, um, obviously we don't have one right here in the Peak District, sadly. Um, so I became a, an ambassador for the Sheffield region. So I, at one stage I had nine or 10 um, events that I was looking after. So kind of a level in between um, everyone's a volunteer apart from the head head office team um, and they are they are quite rightly paid salaried because they do an awful lot but each event is delivered by a volunteer team uh, and as park run grew there they needed sort of a level of someone in between that was familiar with park runs so, or to help out the events um, so I'm, I'm 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 that person i look after the ones in sheffield um, 
And then fortunately, uh, just over, well, just before COVID actually, the, again, they realized that um, we needed more help in Sheffield. So I've now got a smaller number, thank goodness, but I, I still look after, uh, I've, got, I've got two juniors and three uh, 5K events. So um, yeah, it's just, it's incredible to be involved and in. it's incredible to have seen its, its evolution, you know, and knowing, knowing Paul, the founder, you know, he never expected it to be what it is now, but he's created this incredible legacy very admirable from the admirable from the perspective that um he's never sold out you know he could have he could have sold out many times over made an awful lot of money but he hasn't he's stuck to his values part run will always be free to uh to people uh their mission is it used to be the mission was to um for any community that wanted one to have a part run but now it's much wider and it's, you know, um, very ambitious. They, they just want to make the world a healthier, happier place. So one of their biggest success factors is that the average finish time has gone down. Um, so I think when it started, the average finish time was something like 24 minutes for 5K. And I, I think it's now about 35 minutes or something. So that shows it's reaching a different um, audience and an audience that is benefiting more from it in so many ways and also you know the volunteers that are involved you don't have to be a runner you don't have to um, want to be you know physically active with it at all uh, of course it's great if you do and you can well, you can walk you can jog you, you don't again you don't have to run but volunteering is a big part of it and you know giving something back to the local population so I'm very proud to be still involved with it um, and, uh, you know, it's nice nice to have seen the evolution from day one. And nice to see it back now. Oh, yeah. It's been, <laughs> it's, yeah, it was, it was a long, well, I don't know how many months, 16, 17 months without it. Um, and we all, you know, we all changed habits for a while. I was like, oh, it's quite nice to not have to get up really early on a Saturday morning again. But, you know, we've been back now, um, I think six weeks or so, and you just get straight back into it. And it's so nice to be in the parks. And there is a different, there's a bit of a different vibe around it now because there are a lot of people that did couch to 5K and things over over lockdown and they're coming out and discovering it for the first time. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to have it back. I'd like to ask you about Runwell, which you mentioned. I saw that on your Instagram account. Why did you set up? run well and what's your involvement with it now because I saw that it's uh, London based it's it doesn't really have a base so to speak so run well was it was th three three of us and so myself and two really good friends um who all have the same ethos and we were all getting very frustrated with this idea of uh run more do challenges push yourself to the limit uh break yourself basically uh, and we were saying that you have to take into account life stress and be realistic about what you can you can do. Um, and it doesn't mean don't challenge yourself, but 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 really take into account what's going on for you. So um, from a running perspective, and um, that was myself, sort of wrote, um, running programs and a methodology that helped people um, get a handle on on what running and what training they were doing. And then I was working with a lady called Emma Heald, who was a yoga or is a yoga uh, teacher, brilliant yoga teacher, and um, Bernadette Dancy, who um, is a health coach um, and a PhD, a very clever lady. And we, we just wanted to put different messages out there. There's, a, you know, there's so much out, particularly on social media, as I say, about do more, you know, you, you're not a runner if you're not running marathons, if you're not running ultras. And it's the message we just want to put out there was that so many people are are um, breaking down, suffering from burnout and fatigue. And a lot of it is self-driven. And it's because um, we, you know, we and they just push themselves. It's always looking for that next thing. And, and a classic example were all these, these people. And we were just trying to, you know, say, you know, don't get caught up in this. But there are a lot of people saying for my, you know, for my mental health, I need to go and do these massive challenges. And, you know, and initially they seem really inspiring, you know, someone running around the coast of the country or, or whatever, um, doing these, these things that are quite extraordinary. But then they sort of, 
they come back and they're broken. They, you know, and it hasn't helped their mental health um, or and certainly not physically. Um, and it's just, this, why can we just not accept that we're enough? And, um, you know, if you do 5K three times a week, that's, that's fine, that's great. Uh, and if you want to do a bit more, that's great. But you don't have to do these crazy things to, to you know, to be accepted or to, um, you know, to prove who you are or, or overcome some of these issues. So it was, it was just to try and put some different messages out there. You know, runners particularly, we should be the healthiest people on the planet, you know, yet the, the statistics are ridiculous depending on which, which reports you, you read or which academic reports you read. But something like 80% of runners are injured at least once a year. And then when they can't run, they get, you know, anxious and it can lead to depression um, in extreme cases because they can't do the one thing that defined them or that gave them release. And, and so that's, that's not right. So, you know, we want we wanted people to have balance and the whole point was to was to encourage the, the rest and recovery and self-care side of things as well. So and that's very much built into my my ethos now. So so Run Well still exists. Um, it's uh, down in London. Bernie does actually do uh, some run groups some physical run groups where she, uh, you know, takes people out running and um, and tries to get them to train the right way. But it was more us coming together to try and put these messages out there that you don't, yeah, you don't have to break yourself. I think that's really important because I see this a lot from some of the really top brands and they're really celebrating the endurance of ultra um, marathons and just any kind of record, basically. Yeah. And I know in some ways that some brands are working towards making sport more accessible but on the on the flip side i think sometimes it can also put up barriers because yeah. people see that people are breaking records um all the time yeah. and really celebrating that and i think sometimes it can maybe put people off because they might think well i'm never you know it's yeah. going to take me so long or i'll never be able to do that so why should i bother yeah <laughs> definitely i mean it, it 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 can it can make people feel really inadequate and i think this is this is a side that these companies do need to be a bit bit more aware of and it's great to celebrate you know what some of these outstanding and they are extraordinary but the problem is joe public in the street starts comparing themselves to them and saying well if i can't do that i might as well not bother or i'm going to try and do that and got no support got no you know not any real knowledge about how to go about doing it and they and they break themselves so uh, i think there is some responsibility that needs to be taken for for some of this about you know these these companies that are pushing that that kind of thing you know let, let's celebrate great things but let's let's be honest and sort of say this person is out of the ordinary and you know it's like all those it's like the television they always used to say don't try this at home, you know, when you when they did some crazy stunt on television. And it's almost like they need to say that, you know, this person has done this immense thing, um, but don't try it at home because you, you know, it, your situation is different and don't expect that you should be able to do it. And just because you can't do it, that doesn't make you any less of a person. As I say, this whole thing that I often have people saying to me, oh, I'm not really a runner. Uh, you know, I jog a bit or I do the odd 5k or the odd park run. If you run, you're a runner, you know, it's absolutely fine to call yourself a runner and it doesn't matter whether it takes you 45 minutes to do 5k or 15 minutes, you're a runner. Um, and it's, it's, it's just trying to help people see that they are enough, you know, um, doesn't mean you shouldn't try and get better, but you, you've got to be realistic, um, about, you know what what you're capable of and what your life is like and what your situation is yeah i think through running as well you can learn patience and again it, you can bring that into other areas of your life as well to bring in that patience yeah. and and to tune into your body and what you need and yeah. what what areas need working on yeah and of course you you know we all when you say when you're running hard when you when you're running further than you've ever run before or you're running faster it, it's, it does hurt and it is uncomfortable and, you know, and that's how it should be because if it was really easy, we would all just do it. But you have to know where to stop. You have to know where to draw the line. And you also learn very quickly that, you know, miracles generally don't happen. If you, if you know you're a four-hour marathon runner, 
you, you know, there's not going to be, you stand on the start line and you start off and you're like feeling great for the first two miles and you think, oh, maybe I could do a three hour marathon. That's not how it works. You know, there is, there are limits to, to what's going to happen and, and how capable you are of things. And, it, and it's accepting that. And I think, as you say, that all knocks over into, um, into your life as well. You know, we don't have to all, well, we can't all be superstars because then there wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't be, a, if everyone was the same and could do things amazingly, you know, you wouldn't have the, you know, the, the idea of a superstar wouldn't exist. So yeah, I think it's, it's, it's knowing, knowing your limits, knowing what you're capable of and knowing how hard to push and, and when you should push and when you, when you shouldn't. Where do you hope that your masters in coaching science will lead? Um, I don't think I'm hoping it's going to lead me anywhere particularly other than just enlightening me further. So um, I'm really, really glad I'm doing it now, sort of in my, in my mid, mid 40s. Um, I did a I did a business studies degree at, at university first time round, um, straight out of you know after A levels, and I did that out of necessity, not because I wanted to, because um, I thought I'd get a job, which is why I chose that subject. Um, so it's really really nice to be at university doing something I'm really really interested in, and it doesn't feel like study, it doesn't feel like hard work, it just is fascinating. The, but the other side of it is I am studying a subject that I've been working in for a number of years and so I am able to challenge what I'm reading and um, challenge what I'm being taught by lecturers and you know at master's level you really are being taught to critically analyze not just accept what you're what you're reading and I think that would be really hard if you didn't have experience so one of the other things that's really helped me with as well because I, I did before I did my master's and I still do hold academia in high esteem but I've also realised it's not infallible, um, and when you when you're not in it and you haven't been in it, you perhaps might think, well, if someone's a professor or a doctor or um, it's written in a research paper, it must be true. And you know, and actually, what I've learned is actually a, a lot of it is you know conjecture and hypothesis, and they test it in very small specific populations that are actually very different to the population I work with. So it's learning to take what's useful, investigate other things, and um, but also, you know, be prepared to say, well, you know, in my experience that didn't work and that doesn't invalidate my experience and it doesn't invalidate their research. It just, it's a different population. It's a different situation. So um, I love that it's given me that confidence to be able to sort of say, okay, that might work, but it isn't working for me and my clients or, or whatever, or that's really interesting. I'm going to go and investigate that further and try using that. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm loving it. And I, I, you know, I don't know whether what will happen in the future and whether I'll, you know, I don't know, stay in academia or, uh, I mean, I know it's definitely impacted my coaching. Some of the, some of the way I set sessions, some of the, again, some of the, sports psychology elements and stuff I've brought into to my coaching and you know and that that's enough it's made me feel that I'm developing as a, as a coach again um, and say just giving me confidence to challenge what I read and see see around me um, even if it is being put forward by a professor or a you know or someone you know a coach or someone that's not in academia you just I think it just gives you a much more rounded view and an ability to critically think about things and appraise what you hear. And what are you enjoying and finding challenging about the course? Um, well, the, ch the challenging side is, is the technology that all goes with it. So um, when I did my bachelor's degree, you know, I was, we were still typing things up on word processors and uh, going to libraries and getting microfiche of journals and stuff. So starting... Uh, university where everything is online and you don't even need to go into a library and all that kind of stuff I mean that was that was a bit of a shock to the system um, but obviously you still you you know technology is a part of every every day everyday life so you get used to it but it was a very different environment and and also COVID has been a big challenge so the whole of last year was all taught online um, it was not so bad for doing a master's, but, you know, we're a small group. There's sort of nine of us, so you can interact over Zoom. But if you're in big lectures, you know, it's 
it, it would be hard. Um, so didn't quite get the levels of interaction that I had hoped by sort of being in rooms with with these other coaches, you know, um, from other sports and learning learning from them as much as I, as I'd hoped. Um, we certainly have had some interaction. Say over Zoom, it's not too bad. So I'm really looking forward to this this final year, um, and this is where I get to do my research as well. So looking forward to that and um, testing some of my theories that I've I'm kind of coming up with. Um, but yeah, just just enjoyed learning and uh, feeling that uh, that I'm you know investing in myself again, and it's all part of this being a coach and and actually investing in being a coach and. And getting away from being an athlete or anything else so are you able to share what you're planning for your research next year um it's it's i very roughly because um i haven't even discussed it with a, a supervisor yet but there's there's a, a whole school of thought about um how technology is actually um, restricting our athletic abilities so in the same way we've we talked earlier about how time and watches and that is is restricts us the way we behave um so things like um strava and um fitness applications all this kind of stuff now we're constantly under surveillance um and you know the fact that people can't run these days without a watch on and they're constantly monitoring how fast they're running and when they finish they upload straight away to strava and all this kind of thing it's it's adding compulsion again it's another layer of complication to get you away from just doing what you love um and there's a, has been a lot of research around the posit positive side of all these things because initially they can be very motivating and they can encourage people to get out and start running or start doing exercise and uh, and create you know some communities and the idea that you know people give you kudos or whatever for for doing something but um also starting to look at the sort of the darker side of these things where it's driving obsessive behavior um compulsion uh, and people start worrying about you know has someone got their segment or as have they you know performed as well today as they should have done and if they didn't, will they upload it or, you know, the whole, if it's not on Strava or stop my Garmin, you know, if I fall off my bike, stop my Garmin type thing. It, we say, you know, we say it's all a bit of a laugh, but there are definitely, we're learning that there are darker sides of it. So um, around a sort of obsessive passion and that kind of thing. Well, that sounds really interesting. So will that actually be publicly available, that research, once you've... Oh, eventually, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, assuming it's good enough and... <laughs> and uh, but yeah, so I'm going into my final year and you have to do a research project. So um, yeah, if I, if I do it well enough and it passes and um, then yeah, that would be out in the public domain. Yes, it does sound very interesting. So you live here in the Peak District. Do you feel a sense of adventure living and running here? Yeah, I guess, I guess. I've never thought of it like that, but I guess I do. The whole the whole thing of moving to the Peak District for me was was an adventure. So I used to live in London, um, southwest London, and it was you know it's a very nice place to live. Very fortunate I could afford to live there, but um, it didn't didn't feel real, didn't feel authentic to me, and. I feel somewhere, it all gets very deep here, but somewhere deep in my soul, I needed to be somewhere else and I needed to be somewhere um, more wilder where, I don't know, where you can get out into the hills and the trees and get away from people and, and that kind of thing. And we had, my husband and I had looked at a number of places to move to. Um, he's from Scotland, so we had looked at Scotland as well. But at the time we moved, um, I did still, well, we both still needed to be, have access to London. So Scotland just seemed a step too far because it would have always been a drive to an airport and then a flight. So Peak District, I knew from university days because I used to paraglide and, and rock climb. So I knew this area um, and it just felt, it felt right. It puts us in the centre of the country. It's halfway to Scotland so he can go and see his family and I can still get down south to my family. But you've got enough of the, the wildness and the, the ability to get away and from from people and things and um, and 
I'm going to say this, generally up north people are friendlier than they are down south as well. <laughs> which is, which that is a sweeping generalisation, but it's, it is also a big, big part of it. You know, I, I notice, I really notice when you're up here and you're running, yeah, you don't come across that many people if you, if you get off the beaten track a bit as well. But when you do meet people, everyone makes eye contact and says hello, you know, and given half a chance, they'll stop and have a chat with you as well. Down, down south, um, I, one of my regular running routes was around Richmond Park, which is a stunning, you know, deer park. Um, and it, it, it's beautiful. Um, and there's a trail around the outside and it's about seven miles long. Uh, it's a bit undulating, you know, it's not, not the flatlands. It's a bit undulating, nothing like the hills here. And I'll go down and I'd sort of run around there and I think, oh, this is really nice to be back. It is beautiful. And you'd run past people and people would not make eye contact with you, let alone say hello. And I'm like now the crazy northerner that says hello to everybody. And um, no one, you know, you, you sort of are looking at people and you can re you realise they're not even going to make eye contact with you. And you just, and it's just miserable. And I'm like, you're running in this really beautiful place. And yet you're, you know, you look miserable. You do look miserable. So it's, it is strange, but yeah, no, to answer your original question, it's, it, it's been a great adventure moving up here. Um, and I am very lucky, um, you know, yes, I made it happen. Well, my husband and I made it happen and we could, we had the kind of jobs that we could, we could do from other places. So, you know, you need to have, have that fortune as well, but you know, we chose to be here and it's, it's a lovely place to be. Um, and I, I don't think I could really go back and live in a mass conurbation like, like London again. Nice to visit, really nice to visit, but nice to get back and this feels like home. I have to say that I've noticed the difference as well in terms of people chatting to you and things. And there was, I mean, I never experienced that in London. I did used to run in London as well a bit. But up here, even more than just hello, people open gates for yeah. me and actually pause their walk yeah. to hold it open. Yeah. And sometimes I've even been cheered on and encouraged yeah. and it just feels amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's such a nice feeling. Yeah, it's, I think, and it's probably not just a sort of southwest London thing, but when you're in these big, big cities or highly populated areas, you, you actually feel anonymous. You actually feel invisible. And I think that's the nice thing when, you know, you up here, so there is space, so you can get away from people if you want to. But when you, when you do see people, they acknowledge you. And, you know, we're human beings. We want, we want to feel acknowledged. And if you are running and you are suffering, you want someone to sort of smile and go, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering too, not just completely ignore you. Um, so I think, you know, I think that's, there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, and, and it does seem to be you have to come so far a certain distance north to experience that yeah and I've had to learn it myself because I got used to the cave of <laughs> of London I, I kind of got used to being anonymous actually yeah. and I hid in that I, yeah. it kind it had it felt safe but not very nice yeah yeah so it actually it's taken me a long time to grow out of that but being in this environment has encouraged me out of it yeah and whereas I used to maybe think oh people are going to laugh at me when they see me running and stuff it's actually been the opposite yeah experience and people you know sometimes I might shout something like oh I couldn't do that or yeah. some people are really encouraging yeah yeah, it, yeah you just have to remember to, to moderate it when you go back south <laughs> yeah because you get looked at really strange no I mean it's I mean similar to you moving up here moving to a new place and starting over again you have to throw yourself into the the local environment the community you know I sort of join the brass band and things like that and you know you do just just things I would never have done back down south um but that's that's where I grew up. But this, yeah, here you start again, and you feel you have to, you know, earn your earn your right to be here. So yeah, make an effort as well, because yeah. I have had to make an effort to, yeah, sort of come out of my little box and and make the effort to chat to people. But most of the time, it's really rewarding, and you have these amazing conversations, and everything just feels more open and yeah. and just enjoyable. And a way, like you said as well, from like this digital maybe obsession. It, yeah. it, like take brings you out of that <laughs> yeah yeah so how would you approach working with somebody who wants to run but worries it's too late in life to okay. even make a start <laughs> it's never it's never too late to make a start and the thing the thing that to really emphasize here is um i think that when people start running because they see other people running and when you watch runners generally it looks 
it looks fun. It looks effortless. You know, a lot of us have only, you know, see all people at the Olympics and you think, wow, and you're inspired by it. Or you watch the London Marathon on telly and, you know, you, you see all shapes and sizes and you think they're running and they're doing it. But what you don't realise is that every single one of those people have struggled, have said, would say their running feels hard if they were honest with you. So what I, what I say to anyone is you've got to be just, you have to have patience. It will feel hard. Um, and to be brutally honest, it doesn't necessarily ever get easier. You just get a little bit faster. Um, but the best thing to do is to run, walk things. So if I've got someone starting out, um, I, you know, you can start out with as little as 30 seconds of running and a minute walking or two minutes walking, 30 seconds running two minutes walking and just repeat that over and over and over. And then, you know, after a couple of weeks, you'll be able to run for 45 seconds and then a minute and then two minutes. And it's, it is, it, there is no quick fix to this. There is no magic bullet. It takes effort. Now there are some, you know, gifted people that have got the right genes and whatever and can go and run and they might run 5k and having never run before but that is extraordinary that's not normal normal people will that have never done it run before you know it is it, it's um it's intense it is hard on the body if you're new to it so you have to be kind to yourself be patient and start with just little tiny bits little and often but I say if you run for 30 seconds and then walk till you're ready to go again and then another 30 seconds, if you did did that three times a week, you would very quickly improve. Um, couch to 5K is a great, you know, is a great thing. Uh, and I know so many people have jumped on it over COVID. Uh, and that starts with run-walk programs. It is about, say, patience, but having the right expectations. You are unlikely to be sadly one of these god gifted people that can just put on their train as having never run before and go and run 5k effortlessly there, there is the odd person out there that can do that but um for most of us and me included it's not it's it's it takes time it takes persistence but it doesn't have to be hard and horrible if you're if you're kind to yourself i don't know if people talk to you about this but i remember when i first started running in london and also when i've had gaps when I've stopped running. One of the things that I felt really stopped me in my mind was that I worried about what I looked like. So I, if I'd had a long break or, or never run before, I just felt like people might be looking at me and thinking that I, I looked unfit or, you know, just, it's like, it's this strange barrier yeah. in your mind. And yeah. I just, and I just had to just step out. Sometimes I even felt like I might have forgotten how to run, yeah. which sounds absolutely ridiculous. But to change that pace from walking to running sometimes felt like such a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 hard, and that's you know that's a real that's a real fear that people have. But you know, and I can say till I'm blue in the face that you know people people don't care what you look like. People probably barely notice you. Um, and but if you feel that way you feel that way and the you know the best thing is to do like anything that you fear is to just go out and face it um and in its tiny tiny steps so it is you know about making it maybe go out if it's safe in the evening when it's dark or or maybe go out when it's um you know not somewhere remote or anything like that but you know or go out in the rain people aren't out in the rain you know they're hiding away um what a simple trick that I use is wear sunglasses. It's weird. If you put sunglasses on, you almost feel that there's a barrier between you and, and the outside world. So there, there, there are little things you can try, but ultimately no one, no one is watching. Um, and if anyone is making mean judgments, they're just a mean person and they're not anyone you need in your life. Um, you know, it's always the case that, uh, if you're out there doing it, you're beating everybody that's sat on their backside watching TV. Um, and, you know, and what is wrong with walking? What is wrong with walking? That's where it all starts. Walking is just slow running. It's still self-propulsion. Um, you know, I have a big, I have a big argument with, a, with quite a few people um, around walking in, you know, in races. So um, a few years ago, I, I tried as an experiment because I wanted to see what it was like doing a run walk strategy in a marathon I've actually set my marathon PB doing a run walk 
So I ran, I run four and a half minutes and I walk 30 seconds and I just repeat that. Uh, and I've managed to do a sub 3.30 marathon like that um, when I cared about times, not that I do now. But it's, you know, but people say, oh, I couldn't walk. That's cheating. Why is it cheating? What Getting on a pair of roller skates, flagging down a taxi, jumping on a bus, that's cheating. Walking in a marathon or walking in any race is not cheating. It's just going a little bit slower. You know, you're not getting any outside help. You're not, no one's, you know, helping you get along. It's still you moving yourself along. So I do I do have that conversation with, with a lot of people and, and it's it's you know and I and I know that mindset is out there if I or if I walk I failed but that is something that I really try and help people get over because most people um, end up walking at some stage in a marathon and it's far better or an ultra you know we think that all oh, these ultra runners that run the Pennine way and stuff all that kind of stuff they run the whole way of course they don't run the whole way most of us don't run up the hills either most of us walk up the hills um, and run down the other side it's you know walking is absolutely fine and acceptable and and um so yeah so wa- walking is good and if that starts you on your running journey you walk and you take five steps worth of running pace and you go back to a walk brilliant as far as i'm concerned you know and finally now it's your turn to ask a question to our listeners <laughs> okay what would you ask someone who is thinking about a career change into sport coaching or training? Okay, so this sport coaching and or personal training or anything like that, it, it's a privilege. Um, but the biggest question, if you're thinking of it, and it's, it's not a nice question, is, is can you afford it? Because there isn't money to be made. Um, it's not glamorous. It's hard work. Uh, certainly to get yourself started um, and even when you're established it's it's hard to make a living um, out of it I'm really fortunate in that um, I have an understanding husband we both used to work in the city he still does have a city type job and he is the main breadwinner you know I I I earn a reasonable amount and I make sure that what I charge reflects my value and as I've as I've um, learnt more, developed more, um, invested in, in myself more, you know, I've put up my prices to reflect that. But you, I'm never, ever going to get anywhere near replacing my city salary. Um, and it doesn't matter. So it's, it's, not, it's not the question that I know that people would, you know, would want to have to answer. But it's to, realistically, you, you do have to be able to accept that you aren't going to get rich doing this. And if it's, and the other part of it as well is don't do it because you want to be a better athlete or you want, think you're going to get more time to train or if you, if you're coaching or if you're a personal trainer, you get to be in the gym, you'll get to work out all the time. That doesn't happen either. And it shouldn't happen. If you're coaching, if you're being a personal trainer, you should care more about the other people's fitness and health and well-being. Um, And it's really hard to have an extreme focus on yours as well thank you karen my pleasure it's been really good to uh, to chat thank you for listening to this episode please see the show notes for links to karen's website and social media accounts and to find out more about this podcast if you'd like to support my work then please consider joining my community as a patron members can join my events in the peak district have a one-to-one career chat and join a private facebook group